Everyone makes mistakes. Accidents happen. Everything happens for a reason. She'd heard all those platitudes from well-meaning friends, but she'd never been able to forgive herself. The damage that she had done was permanent, and her inner critic wouldn't stop. Why weren't you more careful? How could you be so clumsy? You had one job. It's one thing when you drop a jar of milk or you spill a bottle of wine. But when your one job is to care for a child, the king's grandson entrusted to your care, and you drop him, it's hard to live with. The five-year-old boy was bright-eyed. He woke up every day feeling like sunshine and energy, a smile as big as the day is long, and you could hardly keep him still. You couldn't keep sandals on him. He was running everywhere he went until that day. Word had come that his father and his grandfather were killed in battle. A perfect opportunity for a new ruler to come in and eliminate any threat to the throne. So she scooped him up and she got in a hurry and then it all happened in slow motion. She tripped. She lost her grip. She saw his eyes bulge with fear and crunch. It all happened so fast and yet so slow. In the span of a few hours, this child with so much promise lost not just his family, but his feet. Well, technically he still had his feet, but they would never work right again. And this child she loved would slowly become a man of shame in a place of shame. She'd never been able to forgive herself. But she prayed and she prayed and she prayed and she held out hope that somehow in a way that only God can, he would somehow show his steadfast love and kindness to that sweet boy. Well, friends, today's the story of how God answered those prayers. And it's a lesson for all of us on how God's kindness changes everything. If we haven't met yet, my name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team, and I'm really glad that you're with us. I uh, give you greetings today from Redemption Tucson. I was down there last week. Uh, Redemption is one church in 10 congregations across Arizona, and I got to be down and preach with Redemption Tucson. It was their eighth anniversary, and just a really uh, fun time to be there and be together. There was a guy in the front row in the middle of the sermon who decided to raise his hand, and uh, he thought it was like an interactive lecture or something. I don't know if it's something about U of A or how that works, uh, but uh, just so you know, we're not really doing that here. So, you know, you can raise your hand, but I'm not calling on you probably. Um, I didn't call on him either, frankly, but he's still, anyway, uh, it was quite a moment. Um, and uh, Redemption Tucson, like we are, we're working through this series called We Want a King. We're looking at the lives of, of Saul and David and Solomon. And today in chapter nine that Matt read for us a moment ago is one of the best stories in this whole series. Just an incredible story, an incredible picture about God's kindness, God's love, God's grace. And a crazy name. I mean, Mephibosheth, seven times in this passage, right? Like, why not Bill or Dave, you know, Mephibosheth? So it's, it's quite a tongue twister. Um, as we look at this passage, a, a question really comes to mind is how big of a difference does it make to have God's kindness in your life? Right? Some things come into your life and it's a, it's, it changes everything. Some things come into your life, not much changes. Right? Like some of you in the last few years, something has come into your life and you're, you, you think it's life-changing. It's not. Right? Soda water. 
right? Soda water is pretty good, I guess. You know, like there's more soda water you can buy at the store and all the, you know, how expensive of this stupid water do you want, right? But like, it's nice, but it doesn't really change your life. You know what makes a big difference is clean water, right? If you're in a place with no, no clean water, it's like, you know, I don't, soda water, schmoda water, I need clean water, right? Like, like that makes a big difference. Soda water, little difference, right? So the question is how big of a difference does it make really when God's kindness comes into your life, right? For those of you who aren't followers of Jesus, I, I want to ask you, would, would it change much? if you became a Christian. That's something I, I hope today you'll actually even can consider and say, I don't know, would it? I want to tell you today that it would. And if you're already a Christian, I just want to say that today God is offering you a chance to be reminded of how big of a difference his kindness makes in your life. Sometimes we minimize it. Sometimes we forget it. Sometimes we just are so consumed with our own past and our own sin and our own present struggles that we forget the, 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 the magnitude of the, of the, of the grace of God. We, we just forget it. How big of a difference? Well, here's what we're going to do is we're going to just review this story briefly. We just read it and then unpack this big idea that God's kindness changes everything. God's kindness changes everything. Will you pray with me? And so, Father, we invite you now to reveal to some, maybe for the first time, to remind others again of your kindness, of your covenant love, of your grace, of how that changes us. Lord, help us in this story to see not just David's kindness to Mephibosheth, but your kindness to us. Lord, we pray that you would come, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, as we read, the story begins in verse 1. David's saying, is there uh, still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Again, if you don't have your Bible, make sure you open it to 2 Samuel 9. That's where we're going to be. And so David's trying to say, is there anybody left in this lineage of Saul? Uh, you had Saul, who was the king before David. His son was Jonathan. And Jonathan and David had this close relationship. They had made a covenant, actually, in chapter 20, that they were going to be for each other even after each other died. They were going to be for each other and for each other's families. And so uh, David is saying, okay, I'm king now. Time to honor this covenant that I made with Jonathan. And they come and they find and they say, you know what? There actually is this guy. He was a grandson of Saul. Uh, he was the son of Jonathan. His name's Mephibosheth. And he's uh, got this injury in both of his feet. And he can't walk and he can't move. And he's off in this, you know, no-name place. And David says, all right, bring him here. And he comes and he's afraid and he bows down. And David greets him with this warm greeting and says, you know, not only am I going to greet you and not only am I not going to kill you, but I'm actually going to extend kindness and grace and mercy to you. And he begins to, they begin to farm all of the land that had previously belonged to Saul. We don't know what happened but to it, who was taking care of it or what was happening. But they say, we're going to start farming that. And uh, Mephibosheth, you're going to get the, the proceeds of, of what happens there. And more than that, you're going to eat at my table. I'm going to treat you like a son. And it's a really remarkable story. Now, the background of this story is a ch couple chapters earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Here's what we read there, is that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, we don't know anything about that nurse. I just made up that story at the beginning because I just 
if you think it's an interesting way to think about what, what was her life like after this. But this is Mephibosheth's story. He's the son of the, he's a grandson of the king. And he goes from being this bright-eyed, energetic five-year-old. I have a five-year-old at home. To being injured permanently in both of his feet. So that's the background. That's what gives us the awareness to it. Now, here's the thing you got to see is there's a key word in this text. And we see it three times. It's the word translated kindness. It's translated from the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. The word kindness here, it shows up in verse 1. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him chesed for Jonathan's sake? Kindness. Verse 3. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I might show the chesed of God to him, the kindness of God to him? It shows up in verse 7 uh, when Mephibosheth is bowing down and David says to him, do not fear for I will show you chesed for the sake of your father Jonathan, I will restore to you all of the land of Saul. This is a word that is used 245 times in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. It means loyal love, unfailing kindness, devotion, a love or affection that is steadfast based on a prior relationship or covenant. And I really can't explain it any better than the folks at Bible Project did. If you're not familiar with Bible Project, you got to subscribe to them on YouTube. You got to pay attention to the stuff they put out. It is really, really helpful if you want to go deeper in understanding biblical books and biblical themes and biblical words. And so they have a video actually about this word translated uh, into, here into kindness, but this Hebrew word chesed. So take a look for a few minutes at this. You try to describe what God is like. It could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this fourth phrase, loyal love. It translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Like in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a foreigner married to an Israelite man, but tragically her husband dies along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, but instead, Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep this promise over time, they call it an act of chesed. Notice that Ruth's chesed is not conditional or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word, That's chesed. Now, Ruth's loyal love is truly inspiring, but the one who shows the most enduring chesed in the Bible is God. Like in the story about Jacob, who is a treacherous liar even to his own family. But despite that, God chooses him and repeats the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would have a huge family through whom God would restore his blessing to the nations. And so 20 years later, when Jacob realizes how undeserving he is, he says to God, I'm not worthy of all the chesed you've shown me. And he's right. But God's chesed was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. It's a display of God's generous loyalty to his promise. God's chesed continues into the story of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. When they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham and Jacob, so God defeats Egypt 
and raises up Moses to liberate the people and lead them into the Promised Land. And in the story, this is called an act of chesed because it was about God keeping his word. Now, on their way to the Promised Land, the Israelites are scared of the nations around them and they doubt that God can protect them. So the people threaten to kill Moses and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. God is understandably hurt and angry, but Moses steps in and says, forgive the sin of these people because of your great chesed. Notice that Moses asked God to forgive, not because the people deserve it, but because it's consistent with God's own character. And God agrees, and he recommits himself to a people that don't want to be committed to him. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. Of course, he wants his people to respond with chesed in return, but even when they don't, God's chesed remains. The prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist. It's here one moment and gone the next. But God's chesed is enduring. Like in the celebration of Psalm 136 that opens by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and then 26 times repeats, His chesed is forever. And so, after centuries of Israel betraying their commitment to God, and after humanity's long history of violence and death, God still kept his promise in a dramatic and drastic way by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the people who followed Jesus of Nazareth said that in him they encountered the God of Israel who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And in his life, death, and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us and for all of creation. And God did this because it's just who God is, generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. And when we experience the purity and power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show chesed back to God and to the people around us. This is what it means to say that God is overflowing with loyal Amen. Isn't that good news? That even when everybody else is screwing it up, God is still providing his chesed. And that's this word that shows up. So it's this picture, not just of, of David's commitment to the loyal love that he had to Jonathan, though he references that a few times. I'm going to do this for Jonathan's sake, for Jonathan's sake, for Jonathan's sake. But it shows us God's kindness to us. It, it, it shows us, here's what changes in our lives when we experience God's chesed. So, uh, I want to talk about six transitions that happen when we experience God's chesed. The first one is this. When we experience God's kindness, he moves us from podunk to the palace. He moves us from podunk to the palace. We get this from the meaning of the word in verse 4. When the king says, well, where is this guy, Mephibosheth? Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar. The word Lodabar in Hebrew literally means no word or nothing. It's literally a no-name town, right? Like, hey, what's the name of that town? No name. That's what Lodabar means. Where is he from? Where is he at? He's at No Name. He's at the podunkiest of podunk places, right? You've been to No Name towns, but they had names. This No Name town is called No Name, right? That's where he is. 
And this is the movement. He goes from this no-name town, this obscure place, bunking up with some roommate who's, you know, apparently going to try to protect him from whatever might possibly happen. And instead, he goes from podunk to the palace. And I want to tell you that if you're in Christ, if you're experiencing the hesed of God through Christ, that you also and I also, we're moving from podunk to the palace. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who we are. And you're overwhelmed by how much sin is in your life and how much uh, apathy is in your life and how much you tend to do the things you know you shouldn't do and you do the things, you know, you don't do the things you should do. And, and we're overwhelmed by this. And yet here's God's declaration over us that because of his kindness... We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God moves us from podunk to the palace. I wonder if this is why we love rags to riches stories so much. I mean, there's everywhere in all sorts of children's literature and all sorts of movies. We love these stories. And as I was reflecting on this, it occurred to me that we go from podunk to the palace because Jesus, who's the true David, went from the palace to podunk. Jesus, the eternally existent Son of God, goes, is born in Bethlehem, grows up in Nazareth. Some of you may recall what people heard when they heard he was from Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Lodabar? You're telling me that the embodiment of God's chesed is in Nazareth? What? And yet it's because Jesus was willing to go from the palace to podunk that he takes us from podunk to the palace. That's the first transition that happens because of God's kindness. The second we see in the story is that because of God's kindness, we move from being nameless to known. Right? You can clearly see I'm seeing us as Mephibosheth in the story. Mephibosheth goes from being nameless to known. It's interesting in verse 3. Is there not someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness? And Ziba said, there's still a son of Jonathan. He starts out as a son of Jonathan, no name. We don't know who he is. He's a son of Jonathan, just any old guy. And then verse six, here's David's first words to him. And I love how Matt read this, Mephibosheth. Uh, some months ago, you guys got to hear from Sandy Mason. Uh, he's spoken at a few of our men's one day things. And uh, Sandy is uh, part-time a pastor to the pastors in Redemption Church across all the different congregations. He's been in ministry for about 40 years and he just loves us and checks in on us. And I bet every single time I see Sandy, he goes, Luke Simmons, Aww. Luke Simmons, right? And, and how many of you know you need somebody in your life that's happy to see you? You know, this is why a lot of you bought a dog. <laughs> You're like, I just, I got to have somebody, right? Somebody's got to be happy to see me, right? And, and this, is, this, is, this is what David's doing, is he's going, hey, hey, you're not just a son of Jonathan. You're Mephibosheth. I've even wondered, as, as close as David and Jonathan is, and, and all I can do is speculate here. I'm not, I'm not saying this part is any authority at all, but I just wonder, is this like if, you know, I'd been separated from Seth for some number of years and went, Jay, I, rem right? I remember when you were part of every one of your dad's sermon illustrations. <laughs> you know, like, I just wonder, is, is David going, ah, Mephibosheth, oh man, yes, ah. And this is how 
God delights in us. Mephibosheth's name, by the way, is used seven times in this text. He goes from being nameless, son of Jonathan, to Mephibosheth, 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 Mephibosheth. I can't say it that many times. And this is how God treats us. I love what it says in Isaiah 62. Is it because of God's chesed? You shall no more be termed forsaken, God says to his people. Hey, right now your name is forsaken and your land shall no no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. God delights in changing our name. He changes our setting. He changes our context. He changes who we are from being forsaken and desolate to being my delight is in her and married. This is how God changes us. And one of the, the coolest verses that, that, that I love in the Bible, it's kind of this little tucked away secret verse. Uh, by the way, we're going to study this more at the end of next year. We're planning on preaching through the book of Revelation uh, late next year. Some of you thought we'd never do it and you were wrong. And when we do it, uh, maybe we'll talk about this verse in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, listen to this, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You know that God has a name for you? And no one knows it but him. And someday you. Because you're not just another one of the Billions of people on earth. He knows you by name. That's God's chesed. Here's a third transition. It's because of God's kindness we move from enemy to friend. From enemy to friend. Have you ever had an enemy turn into a friend? When I was in college at U of I, I went there to, I was recruited to be a catcher at at Illinois, and I got there, and the guys that I hated the most were Joe Springard and Jeff Gertz, because they were the other catchers. They were the enemy. The rest of my teammates were teammates, but Joe and Jeff, they were the enemy. And you know what? They ended up becoming actually my best friends, because what they do is they put all the catchers together, and you're just stuck together until you like each other, sort of how it works, right? But sometimes in life, an enemy goes to a friend. But in this kind of geopolitical situation, that sort of thing would never happen. It wouldn't even have a chance to happen because there was something that would happen if you were an enemy to a king uh, that would happen before you had even a chance to be grouped together and maybe come to find out that you actually liked each other. It's that you would be killed. Here's what one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, here's how he describes this. He says, when a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. You needn't go wandering into the ancient Near East to confirm this. You can stay within the pages of biblical history and watch Baasha in 1 Kings or Zimri in 1 Kings 16 or Jehu in 2 Kings 10 to find out what happens to the remnants of the previous regime. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it except David. Right, you get it. Saul was the king. The, the, the king gets transferred over, not through Saul's line, into David. Like the normal thing, the status quo, the way you would handle this is we're going to wipe out all these descendants. Right, it wouldn't be uncommon for David to say, hey, is there anyone left in the line of Saul that I could kill? Because that was totally normal. And yet instead of killing him, he welcomes him. Look at this. Four times 
it describes that, that Mephibosheth, rather than being killed, is going to eat at his table. Verse 7, you shall eat at my table. Verse 10, you shall always eat at my table. Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Verse 13, he ate always at the king's table. A place not just of, get this, David doesn't just go, okay, you're an enemy and I'm going to not kill you, but leave you alone. He says, you're going to go from being an enemy to being a friend. Right? This, this is where a lot of us are, are messed up in our understanding of, of God's chesed toward us. Because when we hear so much about God's forgiveness, what we think is, well, God has moved me from being an enemy. He's not going to send me to hell anymore. And so he's kind of gotten rid of that, but he doesn't like me very much. Like if you gave God the choice, he'd rather not hang out with me. And what this passage is telling us through the story of Mephibosheth is, no, 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 no. The kindness of God moves you from the enemy to the table, to the feast, to the banquet to the presence. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Get that. It's not just that we were enemies of God and were forgiven, but we were enemies of God. We were forgiven and then reconciled through the death of Jesus. That because of Jesus' death on the cross, he suffered the punishment for the sins that we deserved and all of the enemy treatment that we deserved was poured out on Jesus. And all of the friendship treatment that Jesus deserved was poured out on us. Sin and rebellion makes us by nature and by our choices enemies of God. And yet God shows us. Yes. Here's a fourth transition. God's kindness moves us from orphan to adopted. From orphan to adopt it. I, I've got three daughters, and so the movie and the play and the thing I've seen more than probably any other is Annie. I mean, uncle on Annie, right? Like, I'm so glad to, like, they're kind of getting aging out of Annie, which is, praise the Lord. But here's the thing. Annie is such a compelling story that they just keep remaking it. I mean, they'll never not remake it. Like, it'll just keep happening, right? And, and the orphan storyline is a compelling storyline. See every Disney movie, right? Like, we were overhearing our kids play one day, and we're like, hey, how come, how come in these games you guys are playing, as you play pretend, how come we're always dead? And they're like, well, Dad, that's how all the movies are. And they're like, oh, yeah. So, so this, is a, this is a common storyline that, that we're familiar with, and, and yet it's really gripping, but Mephibosheth is, is truly an orphan. His father's dead. His grandfather's dead. He's on his own. He's abandoned. He's destitute. But he ends up being treated like a son. Did you see that language in verse 11? So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. He didn't just tolerate him. He loved him. He welcomed him. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. That in love, God, because of his kindness, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This adoption is our highest honor. Listen, friends, you, I cannot tell much about how you feel about your relationship with God if, you only tell, if we only talk about how you're forgiven. 
Because forgiven is all about the kind of legal dynamic in your relationship with God. And that tells me something, right? Being forgiven. How many of you are like, yes, let's not be, let's be forgiven. <laughs> let's not go to hell. Let's not experience the judgment of God against our sins because there's a lot of it. So we're all for that. But, but, but here's what I can tell you a lot more is if we start to talk about how you experience your adoption, how you experience God's treating you as his child, well, now we're not just talking law, we're talking relationship. So I love this quote by Matt Smethurst. He says this, that the gospel changes heaven's courtroom proceedings from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. One of the reasons we have over the years at Redemption Church cared so much about foster care, kinship, and adoption ministry is because it's a picture of God's gospel. It's a picture of the chesed of God. His kindness moves us from orphan to adopted. This is maybe uh, obvious, but here's the fifth transition, and so we'll be briefer on this, is that God's kindness moves us from fear to peace. I mean, this makes sense. If you go from an enemy and an orphan to a friend and an adopted son, then you're also going from fear to peace. And look at Mephibosheth, how he goes from first cowering at David's feet to feasting at his table. This is what happens to us because of God's kindness and mercy to us. It says in Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba is a word that speaks to the closeness, the intimacy. It's a kind of a pet name for God. We're so close now actually to God that we can call him Abba. Listen, we fear the Lord because he's holy and he's righteous. We respect him. We stand in awe of him. We don't ever want to get flippant with him. But we're not afraid of him because he's our dad. And he's a good dad. He's, as if some of you had a great dad, he's better. Some of you had a terrible dad. Everything you hoped that your dad would be that he wasn't, he's that and more. We move in the kindness of God, in the gospel of God, from, from slavery to fear into a spirit of adoption. So so it doesn't create arrogance in us, but it does create boldness. You can ask God to answer your prayers. You can ask God to show up in your life. You can ask God to intervene because he knows your name and he cares. Here's a fifth, I'm sorry, a, a, a sixth transition. Here's the last one. God's kindness moves us from the end to the beginning. From the end to the beginning. Now I realize that one's not as obvious. What does that mean? From the end to the beginning. Well, it seems like as you're going through this story that Mephibosheth's the end of the line of Saul. Right? Is there anyone else still alive? Well, there's one guy, Mephibosheth. All right, let's go find him, right? This is about to be the end of the story. And any other king, not only would they either kill Mephibosheth or maybe if they were really gracious, they'd go, you know what? He's in no name. We're just gonna leave him there till he dies. But because of the kindness of David and because of the kindness of God, we move from our current situation being the end of the story to being a new beginning. And I don't want you to miss this little detail in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. We're told in, second, in 1 Chronicles 8 that Micah goes on to have many more descendants. And the house of Saul continues for many, many generations to come. 
Listen, if we're left to ourselves and we're left to our sin and we're left to our rebellion, then the end of our story is the end of our story. But because of God's chesed, there's a new beginning. There's a new name. There Abraham was. Receiving this promise of God. I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And he's going, I don't get it, God. This isn't working. I'm supposed to be the father of this great nation, this father of a multitude. And yet here I am and we can't have a kid. This feels like the end of my story. But because of God's kindness, it wasn't. And because of God's kindness, it's not for us. The the reality of the the story just ending like this badly. This is why um, Avengers Endgame was so disappointing. Right, I, I'm not gonna, it's been out long enough now. If you, if you plan to see it, you had your chance, okay? And I'm not gonna get into details, but I'm gonna tell you, like, at the end of it, a bunch of the, the Avengers just die. They vanish. Stop it, Danny, I know you know that. And I'm not gonna tell you which ones, right? And I know there's all this, you know, Marvel Universe jujitsu that's gonna bring them back to life and blah, 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 and whatever. Um, but you, you, I mean, you're like, I just spent three hours and like half the good guys just died. This stinks. Can I have my money back? This was terrible. <laughs> like it's brutal. But, but listen, without, without God's chesed, that's your life. And it's not three hours. It might be 18 years, it might be 30 years, it might be 60 years, it might be 90 years. But without the kindness of God intervening in your life, moving you, naming you, changing you, transforming your status, then the end of of your life is the end. It's the end of experiencing God's goodness. It's the end of experiencing God's blessing. It's the end of experiencing anything remotely close to heaven. In fact, if you go your entire life without receiving the chesed of God, then this life, as terrible as it is, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. And the good news of God's chesed, the good news of God's kindness is that it invites us, God invites us to have that end be changed into a beginning. So we're left with this big question. Okay, then how do I experience? How do I receive? How do I get in on God's chesed? It's never explicitly stated, but if you think about what happens here, Mephibosheth has a bit of an important choice to make. David's offering him chesed. Will he receive it? Will he come to the table? God is offering you through Jesus his kindness, his loyal love, his steadfast care, his forgiveness and grace that you don't deserve, his mercy for the things that you did wrong and the good things you didn't do. He's offering all of that to you. It's all here. And instead of trusting in David, like Mephibosheth had too, we have to trust in Jesus. It's made so clear in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Friend, believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Receive the chesed of Jesus. 
and you will have eternal life. You will move from podunk to palace. You will move from enemy to friend. You will move from orphan to adopted. You will move from from fear to peace. You'll make all these moves. That's what eternal life is. But listen, if you reject the son, you won't see life. This life's as close as you'll get. Friends, God's kindness changes everything. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you for your kindness, your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness, that even though we don't deserve it, you forgive our sin. Even though you, we don't deserve it, you, you welcome us in. You adopt us as your children. We're reconciled in relationship to you. And God, I pray that, that you would remove the accusing lies of the enemy that would say that that can't be true and that there's no more grace for us. God, that inner critic that accuses and accuses and accuses, would, would he or she be silenced so we could hear the voice of the Spirit inviting us to taste and see that you are good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.